The authority by which the Christian leader leads is not power, but love. Not force, but example. Not coercion, but reasoned persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. It's a quote from John Stott, the the late John Stott. He uh, was a a leader, worldwide really, but he, he came out of England in the Anglican Church and led the evangelical movement there. And he has a, a lot of excellent books. And he, he's a very down-to-earth, practical kind of guy. Easy read and, and good, he's a good author. So um, his quote here on leadership is, is, gonna, <clears throat> is a good place to, to start today. Forgive my use of uh, more drink water today, but it's, um, the voice is looking scratchy. <clears throat> So I want us to see here is what it looks like to be a good leader through the examples we see here in, in, in Acts in the end of 15 and 16. Because, and, and leadership is, is vital in, in any kind of institution, any kind of organization or, um, or enterprise that, that wants to succeed. And, and certainly that's vital in the church. So we're going to look at this in the context of the church and apply it to the church, but I think you're also going to see, and I hope you'll see, that you can apply these principles to to any leadership responsibility that you are a part of in your life. And the first thing is, good leaders overcome division. Verse 36 of Acts 15 Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Wow, division. Even among the early church, the leadership of the early church. Paul and Barnabas were together for a couple of years, really, several years this first missionary journey that they went on where they, they for the first time, the, the gospel is being spread out and, and churches being established in town after town. And they went through some, some great trials and challenges and difficulties, but also some, some great praises and, and a lot of excitement about this new thing, this, this following Jesus and, and what all that means. And they're, they're figuring these things out. They want to go back out and see how they're doing and, and go to some new places. Yeah, let's go. And then Barnabas said, yeah, let's take my cousin Mark with us too. And Paul said, oh, I don't think so, Barnabas. That's not a good idea. What's wrong? Well, don't you remember? On the first trip, he, he, he cut it short. He, he jumped on a boat in Pamphylia and went, you know, went back, to, back home, heading back for Jerusalem. 
He, he left us. And Barnabas, well, okay, he did. I get that, and I'm not denying that. But I think we should give him another chance, and he has a lot of good things. And it says, and I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing there, but they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Perhaps it was in part Paul's Pharisee self coming out, not necessarily in a wrong way, but Pharisees tend to be very, to very rigid. Okay, they're, they're, they, come on, they come down in the area of, you fool me once, shame on me, fool, or shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? That's it. Barnabas was more, okay, three strikes you're out, but he's only had one. Or maybe four strikes. You know, well, let's just keep giving them a chance, you know? And, and so, and I think we're honest with ourselves, most of us kind of fit in one of those two categories. You have people that are, are very rigid, okay? And, okay, you, you messed up, and no, not again. And there's times that we need that, okay? But then other times, you know what? Look, a second chance. You've got to give a second chance. Come on. Because if you get too rigid, then nobody's happy and nothing ever gets done. If you, if you get too, you know, always another chance, another chance endlessly, then things get disorganized really fast, okay? So, so you do need a balance of both of those people. So who's right here in this situation? Is it, is it Paul or is it Barnabas? And I'm going to say it is both of them. They're both right. Yeah, this is important stuff we're doing here, Barnabas. We, we had our lives on the line. We were, we were almost beaten to death. We were arrested. We were in jail. And I have to know that the men with me are going to stick with it no matter what. And he didn't last time. And Barnabas, whose name means encourager, is always ready. Well, okay, one time. And I'm sure he's learned from that. And you know, and the fact that he's my cousin helps, but it's still, if he wasn't my cousin, I would, I would still give him a shot here. And that disagreement drove them apart. Now, here's the important thing. They didn't stay apart. While they went on separate journeys, and, and, and really the gospel kind of got doubled in a way, not that they were the only ones, you know, Acts... The, the author of Acts, Luke, tells us so much, a lot about Paul and Barnabas and a few others here and there, but there was others that were also spreading the word during the same time, okay? So, but in this case, it was now Barnabas takes with him Mark. Mark, the same author of, of the Gospel of Mark. And, and they go to Cyprus, and then Paul takes Silas. Many years passed, and eventually Paul... Although he, some of the letters were written around this time of, of here in, in Acts 15, 16, but most of them were written many years later, um, including 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, we don't have to read it, I just want to let you know that in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Barnabas is referenced by Paul in positive light. Okay? So that, that's the only hint that we have that everything was okay, but... It was, but there's more about Mark, okay? In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, <clears throat> Paul writes this, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, 
the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Things got better. Things came back. At some point, they had parted company, but now they're back together. There's an old saying that I believe is just plain not true, or at least only half true. Time heals all wounds. No. I will say this. All wounds need time to heal. And so sometimes you need to take time to be apart, to let things cool off, to, to gain a different perspective about one another. But at some point you have to get together and have the conversation. At some point you have to talk about the elephant in the room between the two of you and get it right. That might be in a week, that might be in a month, that might be a decade from now, it might even be more than that. But here's the, here's the truth, and I think we all know this. If, if you've had a really hard moment with someone, if you've had a sharp disagreement, and you see them a week later, what's the first thing on both of your minds? The yeah, the sharp disagreement. What if it was six months later? It's still the sharp disagreement. Now, I'm assuming nothing else happened in the, in the meantime, you know, to, and, and it could be a year. It, time doesn't matter there. That's, that's why time doesn't heal the wound, okay? Because if you say then 15 years later, and you both have reasonably clear minds, that thing is still right there between you. Now, hopefully, both of you will come together and say, you know, eh, Let's, let's let that go. Are you okay with it? Yeah, I'm sorry. And however it is you're going to communicate your, your, um, your desire to reconcile and you both you know, receive that from one another, then you can move on. But time itself didn't make that happen. Words still have to come to heal things. Um, in 2 Timothy, listen to how Paul talks about Mark in, in his letter to 2 Timothy. Only Mark is with me. Get Mark, excuse me, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring, bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Wow, Mark really did make a turnaround and Paul trusted him again, calls him helpful. And Mark also impressed upon another apostle named Peter. And eventually he ended up with Peter in Rome. It says here in, in 1 Peter chapter 5.13, she who is in Babylon, now Babylon is a code word for Rome, all right? Chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, as does my son Mark. He's calling him a son of the faith, basically. It's sort of like Timothy is to Paul, and we'll get back to him in a moment. But I just want you to see how these leaders overcame their difficulties. And I just want to mention here also Silas, who took Barnabas's place, basically. But in the, in the previous chapter, or, or earlier in 15, excuse me, um, we have Silas introduced in, in the 22nd verse of Acts 15. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas men who were leaders among the believers. 
So he, is, he has already established a reputation as a leader. And down to the 32nd verse of that same chapter, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. So this was, this was a quality guy. This, was, this, was, this man was ready to go. And so Paul was excited to have him join him on his, his next journey. The second thing I want to show here is how good leaders train the next generation of leaders. Simply put, a man named Timothy, who's introduced here in the 16th chapter, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewish, a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew this was the, that this, excuse me, that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew in numbers. Now, before I talk about Timothy, I want to kind of address something it says in there that might seem a little confusing because in the previous chapter, there was this big meeting in Jerusalem about how the Gentile believers don't need to be circumcised. And in fact, circumcision isn't, isn't a requirement for anybody in terms of salvation in Christ. And that's still true. And Paul still believes that. But Timothy, because he is at least part Jewish, he wanted him to do this because he is Jewish. So, so Paul isn't opposed to circumcision for his own people as part of their, of their culture, as, as part of their heritage, and all of that. What Paul was opposed to, and rightly so, was to say that's part of salvation and everybody has to do it, Jew or not. Paul writes elsewhere um, how we should, or in, in his own words, when he's with the Jews, he is like a Jew. When he is with the Gentiles, he's like a Gentile. In other words, he will adapt to their circumstances in order to convey the gospel. So he had Timothy circumcised because he didn't want the fact that he wasn't, wasn't circumcised be an obstacle to the gospel. Why isn't this Jewish man circumcised, some might ask him later. And so Timothy agreed to, and, and that happened. So... Timothy is, is a, a, a son of Paul. Listen to the way uh, Paul writes about him in um, 1 Corinthians 4.17. For this reason I have sent you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach in every church. And um, a couple of chapters later, when Timothy, in, in 16.10 of 1 Corinthians, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. Um, and then, most importantly, listen to Philippians chapter 2 of 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him, who will show genuine welfare for your concern. Now think about that. No one else like him. That doesn't mean that there was no one else in Paul's life that was concerned that he could trust, but Timothy was the first one he wanted to go to. Do you have anyone like that in your life? That, that 
you just know that they show concern for others and you, you trust them. No one else like that, that man, that woman in your life, that friend, family member that, that you can trust in. This is what Paul is saying here. And then continuing in Philippians 2, for everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, <clears throat> he has served with me in the work of the gospel. That's Timothy. The Timothy that Paul wrote two letters to, first and second, and you know, toward the back of the New Testament. And he is training this young man to be a leader. And he gave him leadership responsibilities. Because one day, Paul is going to be gone. And he wants to know that the church is in good hands. And he wants to know that there are people to carry on the work. And that is always a part of leadership, is to be learning from those you're learning from, and then also passing that on to someone else. So the next generation is also going to be led and led well. Good leaders also let God lead them. Pick this up down <clears throat> once again back to Acts chapter chapter 16 at verse 6. Paul and his, and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Three times in that paragraph, you have God intervening to redirect where Paul had intended to go. Not that he was doing something wrong, it was just in, in God's plan, in God's, God's path. No, I don't want you to go here, but I want you to go here. And the Spirit directed him. The Spirit told him. It doesn't tell us exactly how that happened, it may have just simply been Paul had an understanding and, and you know, God's telling me this. And he would probably talk to, to, to Silas and the others with him and say, what do you think? And that, yeah, I, I believe that too. I, I think that's, that's right. That is the work of the Spirit. Sometimes it's, it's like that. Too often we think of the Holy Spirit directed and, and it's sort of this moment where there's, you know, a voice coming from heaven out of the clouds. That would be really awesome, by the way, you know. But um, most of the time it's not that way. But still, the Spirit is indeed leading. Once in a while, he leads through a vision. He does that a lot in Acts. Remember Peter? Because that strange vision of a sheep coming out from heaven with animals on it and go ahead and eat. And Peter didn't want to eat because they're unclean. And that, God said, what I made clean is clean. Go ahead and eat. That was the beginning of Peter's lesson about the gospel needing to go to all people, the Gentiles included. And so visions are also used by God. Visions are used by Peter. And the important thing is, even for a, a seasoned leader like Paul is at this point, he always has to be open to what 
God wants to do. Maybe that wasn't his plan, but okay, God, I'll, I'll stop what I had in mind and, and I'm going to go the direction that you want. And that can be hard for someone who has a lot of confidence. That can be hard for someone who has a lot of experience. That can be hard for someone who is somewhat rigid and has their itinerary planned out and nothing is going to get us off of this itinerary. Okay, God, don't, don't get me messed up here. I got my schedule, you know. And, and, and doesn't God do that sometimes? Isn't there things that happen in our lives that we have our well-crafted plans and we believe they're good and we believe they're blessed by God, we believe that God's in them, and then God says, wait a minute, don't go left, go right. What? Just do it. Trust me. And however it is that God communicates that to you, an obstacle comes along your way or, or a person comes in and a situation happens and, and, and your plan for the next step is, is put on hold or, or, or just maybe completely obliterated and you're never going to do that or no time soon or whatever it is, but this is being open to the Spirit. Not being so confident in, in my leadership ability, your leadership ability, that, oh, we got this, Lord. You don't have to communicate with me. I know exactly what I'm doing. Oh, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> and so God leads us with his spirit. And, and so let's always be open to that. So, so again, there's a balance that, that, that's needed there. We trust his spirit, but we also are thankful for the the experiences and the learning that we've had. And, and that confidence helps us to know what to do, but not so structured that I'm not going to listen to God anymore. And then um, lastly, oh, let me back up one thing. This is sort of, it, it's not directly connected to the theme today, but it's, it's important in the flow of Acts since we're going through the whole book. And you can read right past this and not even see it. In the 10th verse of the 16th chapter, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Now, what does that mean? What's, why is that different? The author of Acts, Luke, this is the first time he's there. Apparently, Luke was from Troas. It was just mentioned there. And he joined them at that point. Everything that happened before this, Luke wrote about, and, and the whole gospel of Luke, including the, the story we're celebrating this week. He learned that from a variety of sources, from people who were there, from other apostles like Peter. And so he got the information. A lot of scholars believe that, that um, Mark and Luke worked together, and, and in a lot of ways they did because their, their gospels are very similar. And um, they might have even sat down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, at one point. To tell, in fact, they had to for, for some of, like Luke's, how else would, would Luke know to write about, you know, the angel coming and what the angel said and all of that? So, so yes, the Spirit's involved in all of this, but, you know, if, if the Spirit just wanted to write a story, he wouldn't use a person, okay? And, and just hand it to us from heaven, you know? So there's a person involved, and, and, and the, the biographer, the historian has to do their work, and they get various sources for that work. So all that to say, in the 16th chapter, up until that point, Luke heard the story from Paul. He heard the story from Peter. He wrote it down. He gave a lot of detail, as much detail as he could get. Now, from here forward, with a couple of bumps in the road, he is there. He is a firsthand eyewitness to what's happening. So he says, 
we traveled from here. So just keep that in mind going forward in Acts. And then lastly, good leaders break boundaries. Down at verse 13, excuse me, 11. From Troas, there's we again, we put out to sea and sailed from straight from Samothrace. I'm probably not saying that right. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. And let me, let me pause there. I had said a week or two ago how when Paul traveled and when he established churches, a lot of those places were, was, again, a strategy that Paul had understanding that if the gospel is to go into all the world, if we establish a church in a really busy city where people are coming and going because it's a trade route, because it's a port, any of those things, because it's a center of government or some sort of industry, commerce, then the gospel is going to move that much faster because people will come to town, they'll do their business, they will hopefully run into a Christian, have a conversation, get interested, turn their heart over to the Lord, get trained, and then sent them back to their hometown where they can pass the gospel on. Philippi was a place like that, a leading city. And that's why he went there. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. She opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Lydia, a leader. A woman leading a church. Hmm. Let's talk about Lydia. She's a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth in the ancient world was very, very expensive. You didn't just, you know, decide, I, what, what, what color, you know, robe or tunic do you want? Oh, go out and get me some purple. No, you don't get that color. You know, you can get something white or off-white or brown, you know, okay, that's great, but, but bright color, especially purple, because of the limited resources they had to dye it and have that, that color stay was, was, you know, not easy to get. I, I don't know enough about it to say what they used, but um, let's just say that purple cloth was very expensive. So who buys expensive stuff? Rich people. And so Lydia had a lot, she, she, was, she was a blessed woman financially because of the fact it says here she had a household, her household. And, when the, and usually when it says household, it doesn't mean your own immediate family only. It is, it is presumed then that she had servants that lived in the household and took care of this probably very big house. This is Lydia. But she's also a worshiper of God. She's not a Jew, but she, even before the gospel came there, she um, heard about the, the God of, of Israel, the God of Abraham and, and, and Isaac and Jacob and those stories of, of Moses and David and all that came to her. And she believed and so she would participate in the synagogue if there was one. But guess what? There's not. 
But it does say that the Lord opened up her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, the reason I say there was no synagogue is because it's a place of prayer, it says. Paul went to the river to look for a place of prayer. Every other city Paul had gone to, and it usually says this, the first place he would go was the synagogue. Because if there was a Jewish community established in these cities, then they, that's where he would begin. He would take the gospel first to the Jew and then to everyone else as well. Well, he got to Philippi. There is no synagogue. But there was a small Jewish community. Now, the rules about synagogues meant this, or were laid out like this. A community had to have 10 Jewish men, then you could start a synagogue. Well, apparently, Philippi had a small Jewish community, but didn't have the men. Now, there was women here, and there may, it doesn't say how many, but even if it was more than 10, because they were women, they couldn't start the synagogue. But they could establish what was known as a place of prayer. It was where you would do a lot of what happens in the synagogue in terms of of worshiping and learning together and praying together. And it was just, you just had to pick a location, but it wasn't thought to be or considered a synagogue. So, Paul gets to the city, knows there's no synagogue, looks for a place of prayer, probably heard about it, and this is where he meets Lydia. And then he ends up staying at her home. Now, it says she's from Thyatira, but apparently she, you know, now lives in, in Philippi, and that's where her business is because that's where travelers come, that's where commerce is, that's where she can, she can sell this, this beautiful cloth that she, that she uh, creates. So Paul sees something in her, um, but not right away because it says that, you know, after she and her household were baptized, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come to my house. She's got a big house. It's a nice house. She has servants. We have lots of space, lots of room. Please be my guest if you consider me to be one of you. And she persuaded us. So it almost sounds like there was a little hesitation. It almost sounds like there was still this, this masculine thing going on, even among Paul and Silas. And, okay, a woman leading. Uh, yeah, okay. And there's evidence going forward that this is the place where the church met in Philippi. And there's more. If you read through all of Paul's letters to the churches, if you were to read just kind of the tone, the context of, of um, Ephesus and, and uh, Colossians and First uh, uh, and Second Thessalonians, um, all of those letters, Corinthians, each of them has... a. a a reason for it to be written. The, the church in Corinth was a mess, okay? Um, but the church in Philippi was completely the opposite. That church got it. That church understood what a church was supposed to be and be like. That church had people who, who gave of themselves and put others first, and, and um, the, the fruit of the Spirit was, was, was emanating in them. Paul loved that church, and that church was apparently started by women. So I'm, I come from a denomination that um, at this point doesn't ordain women. I hope someday we will. 
Yeah, seen that on tape. Hi, guys. Um, <laughs> but I, I think for too long, um, in, in many settings, the church has taken half of the populace and said, well, when it comes to leadership, ladies, you're less than. And I say, no. And in the, in the New Testament, in a, in a very male-dominant world, we see signs of ladies leading. And here is one of the key ones. <clears throat> so let's wrap this up with these four points. And I want you to think about, again, leadership in your life. Maybe you're a leader in this church. Maybe you're a leader in, in some sense of, of a, a Christian organization in the community or some kind of other ministry. Great. Do it. Do it well. Apply these things. Learn these things. Keep getting better at it. But you also lead in other places, don't you? Maybe you lead at work. Maybe, you know, if, you, if you're a mom or a dad, you lead at home. Maybe you lead in your neighborhood or you're volunteering in, 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 in the local um, parents' organization at school or whatever it is. You can bring these same qualities to those situations. In fact, we should. Good leaders overcome division. No organization can function if people are at each other's throats all the time. So you can come in potentially and help bring people together to work together. Uh, good leaders train the next generation of leaders. So, so are there people who are new to this that you can train and, and get them up to speed on how to do this and what we need to be and become? Good leaders, let God lead them. Always being open to what, to what God is showing you. And, and maybe it's something new or different, which leads to the next one of breaking boundaries. You know, Paul was, was breaking boundaries with those ladies in Philippi. And um, he's given us an example of how to break boundaries. I, I think about leadership at home. Um, I, I'm blessed to have, have parents as grow up with parents as, as a model of how to be a dad, how to be a father. That's a great blessing to have. And a lot of us are the same. We look, we look to our mother, our father, our grandmother, our grandfather as people. Yeah, I like, that's the kind of, of mom or dad I want to be. But sometimes you might run into a situation where, no, I don't want to go that route. You, you have to break away from what your normal default setting would be in the area of parenthood because there's something, something better. Something different. Break a boundary there, perhaps. So in, in, in your job, you know, and that can be tough because, you know, there's, there's always somebody above you no matter what job you have, okay, some, somewhere. And, and so a lot of this has to be handled uh, with, with discernment and, and very delicately. But on the other hand, it's just a simple day-to-day -day way that you can be. And um, so this is what I, I hope that you'll see this morning, have seen this morning in this passage, and um, may we be leaders that, that really honor God. Let's pray.